0: turn to Hebrews chapter 6 Hebrews chapter 6 And uh, this afternoon we're going to look at the danger of departing as we continue our our study on the book of Hebrews. I want to remind you that we're in the middle of a large section of the epistle, dealing with Christ as our great high priest, how he is better than the Old Testament priesthood. I also want to remind you that in our last study, we mentioned two additional warning signals of the six that are given in the book of Hebrews, remember there's warning number 1 is peril of drifting, number 2 is the peril of doubting, number 3 is the peril of dull hearing, and number 4 is the peril departing. And that's where we're at today. It's this fourth warning we want to focus on uh this afternoon. And verses 4 through 8 often create a problem for many Christians. And so we're going to look at this uh, potentially, uh, problem passage uh, this afternoon. Uh, it's uh, it's a problem, and uh, someone might ask, "Well, why is that?" It's because there are those who take portions of Scripture from the Bible, and they disregard what is said before uh, and what is said after, and they begin to build whole doctrines. Uh, and even uh, churches and denominations on certain passages of Scripture without regard to uh, what's come before or after those passages. And I think we always need to be careful when interpreting the Scriptures to follow two very important principles that go hand in hand. One is that, uh, that we should interpret Scriptures in the context in which they are found, and secondly, interpret Scriptures in the context of the entire Bible. Uh, that means we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, I would say at the outset that this is not an easy passage, and there have been a great many, even Bible scholars, uh, who disagree as to the meaning of these verses and have proposed various interpretations of this, this passage. But keeping these two principles in mind, I believe uh, we can examine this passage carefully and see what the passage is saying to us. Now, in order to do that, we must remind ourselves of the context of these verses. Uh, Last time, we spoke of the peril of dull hearing. Uh, The writer warned his readers that they were still babes in Christ and they needed to advance in their Christian walk and to go on to perfection or maturity. Now here in chapter 6, the writer speaks of leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ and moving on to the build on that foundation. Uh, He gave six foundational stones, and we looked at those last week uh, to build upon. Uh, These uh, six foundational stones were uh, Old Testament types that prefigured Christ in the ritual symbols uh, and symbols and the ceremonies that they had in the Old Testament. They were repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, we won't go through and explain those again. Uh, if you want to uh, get the explanation of that and forgot the explanation of that, uh, you can go on our website and you can listen to last week's message again. I believe it's there. Uh, and so uh, we'll continue on from there. So this is the context in which the writer says what he says. Uh, he's speaking to Hebrew believers and he's encouraging them to leave the old covenant teachings and to grow up in the new covenant principles. Again, it's important to see these things in the context as that uh that they are written. Um someone questioned me after I preached this particular on these particular verses uh one other time uh and uh in uh, chapter 6 and they wondered why I skipped the significance of the laying on of hands. And uh, they asked me if I laid hands on those who were sick and anointed them with oil and prayed for their healing. Uh, this man was apparently convinced of the teachings of the Pente- Pentecostal charismatics and the faith healers of the day, and he went to great lengths to try to convince a group of us uh, that got in this discussion here that these were important Bible teachings for us today. And he had picked out a number of verses in various places. He had taken them out of context, and he had formed a false doctrine, which is being promoted widely today. Uh, he said, "It isn't isn't God's will for anyone to be sick. You believe that? <laughs> isn't? Uh, do you, have, you, have you had cold lately? Uh, have you been sick lately?" Well, according to him, it was not God's will for you to have a cold. It's not God's will for you to get sick. It's not God's will for you to have cancer. Uh, uh, Anyone that uh, uh, gets sick must be out of God's will. Got to watch out what you uh, you, uh, listen to and what you take hold of as part of your beliefs. Uh, He said it wasn't God's will for anyone to be sick. And yet when he was asked of his own infirmities, which were obvious, he blamed it on the sin of his mother. So there you go. It's his mother's fault. You know, that's what people like to do. They like to blame others. Well, listen, it's so important we remember to rightly divide the word of truth and be careful for the false teachers that might be going around today. They might even come in uh, and uh, question us in our own uh, church here. And so this brings us to a passage which has caused many difficulties. Uh, and probably as many difficulties as any other passage, but some consider it the most difficult passage to interpret, and many commentators will even avoid it. You go down and you go say well what 's this guy say about this yeah it 's gone it 's missing it 's not even there he did, he didn 't even address it and that would be easy for me to do too. uh We could just go along and say well we 're just going we 're not going to mess with that today." But you know what? We don't do it that way here. We go verse by verse and we come to a difficult passage. We try to uh, hit it head on and see what it says, right? And so uh, we're going to look at it carefully. So look, look at verse 4, chapter 6. It says, for it is impossible for those that have, were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should, shall fall away, to renew them again into repentance, unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now let's look at... First of all, some faulty interpretations, uh, and I'm not saying faulty in the sense that there's no possibility that these could be interpretations, but it's just that I've chosen not to accept them in the context of uh, what's being said here. As I've studied this passage, I believe these interpretations are not consistent with the context of the book or the entire Bible. I mean, no disrespect to men who are uh, maybe a great deal smarter than I am and have more education than I have, but I happen to disagree with them, and I'm not going to agree to disagree. You know that I don't like that saying anyway. I'm just going to disagree with them, okay? Okay. And uh, uh, you may disagree with me. That's your privilege. But I trust God will teach us some valuable lessons that can help us in the way that the writer of Hebrews desired for his readers uh, to be taught, and that is to leave the baby stage of Christianity and go on to maturity. Notice the first uh, interpretation that we look at here. The losing of one's salvation. The losing of one's salvation. Uh, now, this is the most unsatisfactory of all interpretations, and that is that there are those, uh, who have, are spoken of as Christians, and then they lose their salvation. They've lost their salvation. That is, they were once saved, but they lost their salvation. There are many people who hold to this position. And for the most part, they, uh, are real born-again Christians themselves. Uh, it's like someone who is uncomfortable about flying Uh, on an airplane. They know they're safe as anyone else on the flight, but they do not enjoy it as everyone else does. Uh, I think there are many people today who are not sure about their salvation, and so they're not enjoying it. They don't really have the assurance of salvation, but they may be, well, they well may be saved if they have fixed their trust in Christ as their Savior, now the important thing I believe is not the amount of faith they have, but the one in whom they have uh, have faith in. Uh, they turn to this passage of Scripture more than any other, since they deny that we have a sure salvation which cannot be lost, and that the believer is safe in Christ. No doubt, you know we have a number of Christians in this community uh, who would fall into this category. Maybe you know someone like that. But I want to make it abundantly clear that I believe we have a sure salvation because Scripture is very emphatic on this point. Romans eight one: There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Romans 8.33 uh, says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And so the throne of God... Is back of the weakest, the humblest man who has come to trust Christ. And today there is is not a created intelligence in God's universe that can bring a charge against one who has been justified through faith in his blood. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? Is it Christ that died? Yea, rather that is risen again. Who is Even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, wow, that's just as clear as can be. We cannot be separated from God once we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, those words should give us a great foundation of assurance. Can you mention uh, anything that Paul didn't mention in this passage? Can you think of anything that would separate you from the love of Christ? Well, I think that list pretty well covers it all, doesn't it? And here we have a guarantee that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that is seen, nothing that is unseen, nothing that is natural, nothing that is supernatural can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ also makes some tremendous statements about our absolute security. Listen to Him and trust Him and believe Him. The Word of God is living and powerful. John 10, 27 and 28 uh, and my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. What kind of life is it? It's eternal life. Eternal life. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. Again, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. By the way, that's your memory verse this week, right? So... uh we just have it emphasized once again. But it goes on to say, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It's not a question of your ability to hold on to Him. It is His ability to hold on to you. He says there, uh, here with infinite wisdom and full authority of the Godhood that He can hold on to us, and that they who trust Him shall never perish. The question is, uh, is your hope fixed in God, who is all-powerful, or in a God who may suffer defeat? You see, this is really the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, of all the wonderful passages of Scripture which make it abundantly clear that you and I cannot be lost after we've been born again into the family of God. We become children of God through faith in Christ. And once a person has become a child of God through faith in Christ, he has eternal life. I cannot accept the interpretation that people would make of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse, 6, verses 4 through 8, that once they were saved and now they're lost. You see, that's not taking this passage in the context of the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't teach that in other places. Now, there's a second interpretation. That's the hypothetical case. There are those who contend that this is a hypothetical case. It says, if, if they shall fall away. Now, there's a possibility that that might happen. Uh, the writer does not say that it does happen, only that it's possible. Uh, those who contend that this is the correct interpretation say that this is the biggest if in the Bible. And if this interpretation is true, I probably would agree with them. But I don't agree with them. So there's a third interpretation. That is, these are mere professors of salvation. Uh, this dis- uh, the interpretation says, well, this isn't a description of believers at all. They say this is just nominal Christians, people who say they're Christians, you know, uh, like Judas Iscariot. They explain words like enlightened to mean that the person just came to know salvation, but they really didn't get saved. Uh, That word tasted doesn't mean drinking. Now, I can kind of identify with that. Some years ago, when I was just in uh, high school, One summer I went out with a harvest crew and we started down in Oklahoma and we went up through uh, Kansas and into Nebraska and uh, we did a wheat harvest uh, uh, for uh, contracted uh, uh, to cut wheat and uh, for farmers and so forth and we were in the harvest crew. And one hot, hot July day, uh, I was unloading a load of wheat in a... um, kind of a big shed that they were using to put the grain. It was uh, not really a granary, but I was getting thirsty. I was getting so hot and I was getting thirsty and there was no, I had no water jug around and I spotted someone had left a nice gallon of, uh, look like Kool-Aid for me. And so I thought, boy, I'm thirsty. I got to have some of that. And so what I did was I took that, I took a big swig of that and it was gasoline I learned my lesson. <laughs> Smell it before you drink it. I tasted but I did not <laughs> I did not uh, drink it. I felt like I drank it the rest of the day but you know those who say that these were just had tasted but they didn't drink they say in effect that there's almost a point of true salvation but they fell away and they wanted to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, the Bible does speak of those who merely profess Christ. Uh, These are the apostates in the church. For instance, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2.22, But it happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned again to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her own wallowing in the mire. I believe those people are definitely professors, not genuine believers. But here in Hebrews chapter 6, we do find genuine believers because they were identified as such in many ways. If you go back to chapter 4 and 5, you get the entire passage, you get the context. You will notice that he said, these people were dull of hearing. Does not say they were dead in trespasses and sins, but they were dull of hearing. In chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. They needed the milk because they were babies, baby Christians. An unsaved person doesn't need milk. An unsaved person is dead in their trespasses and sins. What they need is life. They can't drink the milk until they get life. Needs to be born again. And after he's born again, he, you know, then a little milk here starts to get them on their way. And for pretty soon they grow and they mature and they become, uh, Eaters of meat. So I believe the writer of Hebrews is addressing these baby Christians, and he's urging them to go on to maturity. Well, I've come across a number of other possibilities concerning the interpretation, but I want to get to the one that I think is the most acceptable. That is a faithful interpretation. Interpretation. As we look at this passage I want you to notice that the writer is not discussing the question of salvation. I believe he's describing saved people. Notice first of all the marks of salvation. We begin here with those who once were once enlightened verse 4. Once enlightened the word once is a word that means once for all. It emphasizes the eternal, eternality of the salvation experience. Again, I think we said last week you don't have to get saved over and Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus you must be born again and again and again and again and again and again. You must be born again. You get saved, and it's a once, uh, one time experience. The word enlightened is a word means to shed rays. Uh, that is to shine or brighten up, enlighten, illuminate, make to see. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19 says, "...the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceedingly greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power." First Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so these people were once enlightened. At one time, they had the light of God's uh, uh, salvation shine upon them doesn't mean they were enlightened in the past and they're no more enlightened, but they were once enlightened. It's describing saved people. Secondly, they tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, of course, there are those who say tasting is not drinking. You don't, you don't want to drink gasoline, you want to taste it, but you don't, you, know, you don't want to taste it. Believe me, take my word for it, okay? But they say tasting is not drinking. And again, if you examine this word here that's used for taste... It is a word that means to experience it, or to eat of it, as opposed to just putting it on the tip of your tongue and then spitting it out. You know, I'm reminded of those passages in John which refer to Jesus Christ as the bread of life. In John 6, 32, it says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you Not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he that cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. So this tasting is is actually more than just Tasting it on the tip, but it's actually per, uh, taking it in. Again, a description of believers. Thirdly, they are partakers of the Holy Ghost. The word partakers means to be a participant, a share, by implica- implication and associate, a fellow partaker, a partner. Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. In verse 14 of chapter 3, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. In Second Peter one four, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption uh, that is in the world through lust. And so, the partakers of the Holy Ghost are those who have received the Spirit of God when they got saved. We receive God's uh, uh, the Holy Spirit into our lives, and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Number four, you see the description here, is tasted the good word of God. This is verse five. Tasted the good word of God. They have fed on the word, which is food for the soul. They heard the word of God preached and taught, and today we would say that these are those who have diligently studied the Bible and have been faithful to hear the word of God preached. And then number five, we could say the powers, tasted of the powers of the world to come. Tasted the powers of the world to come. The world to come is used in a sense of a Christian dispensation. It's talking about the church age or the age of grace. Not talking about the Old Testament law age, but it's talking about the age of grace. These are the characteristics of believers. These are not the characteristics of someone who got saved and got lost. It's not the, the characteristics of someone just professing to be saved. No, these are people that are saved. That is, it's impossible once that they accepted Christ as their high priest for them to go back to the Old Testament ways of sacrificing because those ways are no longer valid. Christ has been sacrificed once and for all and to go back and crucify Him afresh would be of no use, no avail. It would only bring shame to the name of Christ. So these are marks of salvation here. Notice secondly, the fruit of salvation. The fruit of salvation. It says, if they should fall away to renew them again into repentance. Repentance. Now, I want you to notice the word uh, in, go back to verse 4. For it is impossible, it is impossible to renew them again into repentance. The re- word repentance there has to do with fruit bearing, this isn't the repentance of of salvation. The writer is saying it is impossible to bring about the correct results to produce the fruit of a Christian by practicing Old Testament sacrifices. You see, that's what he's dealing with. You've got to know the context. You can't just say, well, this is what this is saying, and we're just going to take this little piece out, and we're going to put it into our lives today. No, we've got to interpret it by what is in the context and who. Paul is addressing. So the writer is talking about the fruit of salvation, not about the root of salvation. Look at, uh, at verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. The writer is speaking of the fruit of the Christian life and the reward that comes to him as a result and the whole sense of this passage is that he warned them of the possibility of losing their reward paul says there is a danger of our entire works being burned up so that we will have nothing for which we've been we could be rewarded you go back to 1 corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 and there you read for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is christ jesus christ He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The work of every believer today is going to be tested by fire. What does fire do? It burns. Some of you would like to go home and put a log on the fire. And you'd like to see that log just consumed up and put out all kinds of heat and just warm your your house you like the smell of that uh, wood burning stove? But that fire is burning. It's, it's, it burns. That's what a fire is for. Now, the work you are doing today for Christ is going to be tested by fire. The Bible teaches us that. Now, I'm afraid that a lot of Christians, including some of us who are preachers, have nothing but wood, hay, and stubble that was going to go up in smoke. Someday, every believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and let me say to you this that it's going to be not going to be a little uh, sweet experience where Jesus Christ is going to pat you on the back and say, Oh, you're a nice little Sunday school boy. You didn't miss Sunday school for 10 years. You're so wonderful. We used to have attendance pins when I was a boy, and we'd Get a different, you know, two years, three years, four years, perfect attendance. That's not uh, what's going to happen here at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I think attendance is important. If you know me, uh, the importance of being faithful, not only to Sunday school, but Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening Bible study, but the Lord wants even more than that. He's going to test you, and he's going to see if you really had any fruit in your life. Have you grown in the grace and knowledge of him? Have you been a witness for him? Has your life counted for him? Have you been a blessing to other people? Listen, I'm not so sure I'm I'm looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ because he's going to take this preacher apart there. Now, I'm not going to be judged there for my salvation. But because I am saved, he is going to find out whether or not I'm going to receive a reward. Now, if you notice the illustration here in verse 7 and 8 of the believer's life bringing forth fruit. Look at verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that oft, uh, cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But, he would, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto the cursing whose end is to be burned. If a believer's life brings forth fruit, he uh, receives a blessing from God. If it brings forth thorns and briars, it is rejected. When people, or when the apostle Paul wrote to Titus, a young preacher, he dealt with the matter of works. He said, but not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Titus 3 5. And from this, one can be inclined to think that Paul's not going to have much regard for good works, is he? But if you move down to the, uh, Titus 3.8, it says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. You see, good works don't enter into the salvation picture, do they? But when one becomes a child of God, when one is saved through Jesus Christ, by faith in Christ, works are of supreme importance. Listen, if you are a Christian, it's important for you to live a Christian life. Before you were born again, works didn't enter in because you could not bring anything to God to be accepted of Him. Scripture says that the righteousness of man is filthy rags in his sight. You don't expect God to accept a pile of dirty laundry, do you? He's accepting sinners, though. He accepts us on the basis of redemption that we have in Christ. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we're born anew. We become a child of God. And when that happens, we are, as Peter put it, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Now, after you've been saved, you're to show forth by your good works, before the world, that you are redeemed of God. And therefore, the Christian has something to show. And that is the thing which is going to be judged. If we're going to continue as a baby, and we're just going to be nothing but a crybaby or a troublemaker, turning people from Christ instead of to Christ, there's not going to be much reward. In fact, there's not going to be any reward. There's going to be shame. At his appearing. Now, if you look at this text again, as we've seen it here, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame says, fall away. That's an interesting phrase there. It's really one word in the Greek. It is peripeto, which means simply to stumble, to fall down. It would be impossible to give the meaning apostatized to that phrase. But it's the same word used of the Lord when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he fell on his face. And he prayed. Now there are many examples in the scriptures of men who fell away. The apostle Peter fell. Did he not? Didn't he uh, deny Christ three times? But he wasn't lost. The Lord Jesus said to him in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Peter suffered loss, but he was not lost. John Mark is another example. He failed so miserably on the first missionary journey that when his uncle Barabbas, uh, Barnabas, excuse me, not Barnabas, Barnabas suggested uh, that he go to the second on the second journey, Paul turned to him and said, uh, uh, "Never, never mind. This boy's failed, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm through with him." Well, thank God, although he stumbled and he fell, God was not through with him, was He? Even the Apostle Paul, before he died, acknowledged the fact that he had made a mistake or a misjudgment of John Mark. In his last epistle, he wrote, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now neither Peter nor John Mark had lost their salvation, but they certainly had failed, and they suffered loss for it. You go back to chapter 6, verse 1. And you notice here that uh, the writer is talking about repentance from dead works. From dead works, not salvation. If you remember, John the Baptist also preached this. He said, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Luke 3.8. He's referring to evidence of repentance. Repentance in our day does not mean the shedding of a few tears. It means turning right about to face toward Jesus Christ, which means a change of direction in your life, and your way of living. You know, many of the Jewish believers were returning to the temple sacrifice at this time. And the writer of Hebrews was warning them of the danger of that. And before Christ came, uh, every sacrifice was a picture of Christ and pointing to his coming. But after Christ came, after he died on the cross, that which God had commanded in the Old Testament actually became a sin. You see, these people were at a crucial time of history. The day before the crucifixion of Jesus, they had gone to the temple with sacrifices in obedience to God's command. But now it was wrong for them to do that. Why? Because Jesus had become that sacrifice once and for all. And today, if you were to offer a bloody sacrifice, you would be sacrificing afresh the Lord Jesus because you would be inferring that he died some 2,000 years ago and it was of no avail. But you still need to sacrifice to care for your sin. Well, it would mean that you would not have faith in the atonement or the death of Christ, would it not? Your faith would not be in in what he's provided for your redemption. See, that's what it says here in verse 6. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him into open shame. Someone has said we either crucify or crown the, the Lord of our lives. Today, we either exhibit a life of faith or a life that would crucify him afresh especially when we feel that we have to go back under the Mosaic law and keep the law in order to be saved. It's a matter, it's a serious matter to go back to that legal system. And so remember here, we're talking about the fruit of salvation, that which results, and it's a serious thing to have accepted Christ as Savior and then live in sin to nullify what you do by being a spiritual baby, by never growing up doing nothing in the world but building a big pile of wood, hay, and stubble. Let me, as we close, notice the key verse here in this chapter, verse 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. The writer to the Hebrew believers is saying, I am persuaded that you're going to live for God. That you're not going to remain babies in Christ. But you're going to grow up. And then in verse 10, he says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Work is where uh, a work and labor of love won't save you. But if you're saved, this is why you're going to be rewarded. This is where the good works comes in. And although they have nothing to do with your salvation, they certainly have a lot to do with your, believers, uh, uh, your life as a believer. Verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Do you have that full assurance of hope unto the end? You know, we need that, don't we? And then verse verse 12. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God has made a lot of promises to us who are faithful to him. And so we need to be faithful. Let us move forward. Let us build and grow and mature in our Christian lives. If you're here to this afternoon and you don't know Christ today, you need to put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for